It's 836. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Glad to be back. Had a couple days off. Come back, sort of recharged. Had a lot of fun. I was in uh, was in Las Vegas and then come back and do the opening day show. I want to say a special thank you to everybody who helped us put together the show. I've been doing this for years, and I have to tell you, it's one of it's one of the most enjoyable shows of the year. And uh, I think our, our guest list and the people we talk to, um, just as good as it's gotten. And um, I just, just had an absolute blast doing that, and I hope you enjoyed it if you had a chance to listen to this. Um, speaking of the return of baseball... Um, we are going to be welcoming back baseball with a Follow the Brewers ticket giveaway that starts today. It is very, very cool, and we're able to do this through, again, um, our, our friends with West Bend Insurance, the Silver Lining, um, and Noodles and Company, who are helping sponsor this. Here is the way this is going to work for the next several weeks. Every day, around nine ten. Maybe it might, some days it might be 9.08, some days it might be 9.12. So, but around 9.10, we are going to give you an opportunity to be a designated caller. If you are the correct caller for that day, you will automatically win a four-pack of tickets to see the Brewers play at Miller Park. Okay, and that, that's cool. That, that's a great prize. And we're going to qualify a daily winner each weekday during the course of, of the contest. Then what we are going to do on Friday is, and we're going to have a daily winner on Friday as well. So on Friday, we are going to select one of the daily winners from that week. They will be randomly selected, and that winner, that winner will receive a trip to see the Brewers play on the road somewhere. For example, our, we're going to start off this week, and our first qualifier is going to be at nine ten this morning. So you want to be li- approximately nine ten this morning. So you want to be listening for your chance to win um, on Friday. We will again draw randomly a winner from the. It'll be four people this week: Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And we're going to send um, them to uh, see the Brewers in Pittsburgh. Um, and be interesting. When I was talking to Bob Euchre and Jeff Levering yesterday. Everybody talks about how they they love Pittsburgh. Just absolutely love love seeing games in Pittsburgh. So we'll be you know sending you uh, to Pittsburgh um, for an opportunity to see the Brewers on the road. So it is follow the Brewers. I am very excited about this. And again, I appreciate um, everybody who worked so hard to put this together. West Bend, the silver lining, um, Noodles and Company, and of course, WTMJ. Um, so I'm very, very happy that we've done this. The first winner, be prepared. Around nine ten this morning will be your chance to be the first qualifier for follow the Brewers. All the uh, rules are up on the website, so you can check that out. While you are on the website... Insight 2017 is coming up in 15 days, two weeks from tomorrow. Country Springs Hotel, the guest list, in my opinion, it's just absolutely outstanding. We're going to have Governor Walker, um, an opportunity to see him up close and personal. We're going to be joined by Wayne Larrabee, the voice of the Green Bay Packers. It's about a week before the NFL draft, so you'll have a chance to talk to Wayne or listen to us talk about the NFL draft. We're going to have three justices from the state Supreme Court. Um, Daniel Kelly, Annette Ziegler, and Rebecca Bradley, they will all be there. We'll be discussing things. Um, Annette Ziegler, by the way, she's running unopposed, but she is on the ballot today, um, running unopposed for a second 10-year term to the state Supreme Court, but she'll be with us in a couple weeks. Don Smiley and Bob Babish from Summerfest will be talking about Summerfest, the 50th anniversary, but also Summerfest past, and of course, Summerfest future. One of the new guests we added just the other day, Joe Bartolotta from the Bartolotta Restaurant Groups. We're going to be talking 
about trends in restaurants and things like that. It's going to be a lot of fun and your chance to be there. Again, just when you're at WTMJ.com, check, click on the link that says Insight 2017, your chance to buy tickets. Hope to see everybody there on um, Wednesday, April 19th. That is two weeks from tomorrow. We start off this program like we start off all programs with three big things. Big thing number one. It is election day. There are things you need to know. I will tell you and we will discuss. It's coming up. 841 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 844 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Today is election day. I voted number 56 at my polling place. And I think that includes all the absentee ballots that had already been, I think, probably put through the machine. Um, it it, that, that's actually nothing. This is going to be a very low turnout election, which is one of the reasons why you, you want to get out and vote because your vote actually counts more. I understand it's one person, one vote, but given the fact that it's low turnout, you will have more of an impact in deciding races. Two statewide races. One, as I was mentioning earlier, Justice Annette Ziegler, who is – I think one of the bright lights on the Wisconsin Supreme Court, she is a conservative. She is running unopposed for a second 10-year term. It says a lot that the, the left was unable to recruit a candidate to run against Justice Ziegler. Ten years ago, she had a very, very contested race, um, ended up winning uh, this year. They couldn't even find somebody to run against her. And I think, you know, that's uh, first of all, it is a reflection of the, the reality in Wisconsin that when it comes to judges, at least in the Supreme Court, we want to see conservative justices who I think follow the rule of law as opposed to legislate from the bench. That's number one. Number two, I think it is a tribute to what a good justice Annette Ziegler is. So she is running unopposed and. I assume that she and her husband will, will vote for her, and, and I voted for her. So hopefully that that three votes alone will be enough. But going out, vote for Ned Ziegler. I'm, she's running unopposed. But when you see the ballot, even though it's unopposed, you know, mark that. I, that would be my recommendation. Secondly, the other statewide race is for state superintendent of schools. The current state superintendent of schools, Tony Evers, is running against – he's seeking a third term. He's running against Lowell Holtz. We had Holtz on you know, last week to discuss some of the issues. There is a very clear difference between the two. Evers is a, a, a part and parcel of the educational bureaucracy. He is a member of the educational establishment. He's supported by you know the, the teachers and the no. We, we don't want to have we don't want to have change. We want to have our, the, the system remain intact, even though the system is failing. He's part of that crowd. The problem is, as Republicans have taken over control of the state legislature and the the governor's mansion. The, the role of the state superintendent of schools has really been been neutered. Um, from a policy perspective, there's not a lot the state superintendent of schools can do. So essentially you see the state superintendent of schools going around and opening up new middle schools and things like that. Now, obviously, you can advance policy ideas. It would, in my opinion, be good to have a more conservative state superintendent of schools. But this is a really, really, really low-profile race. Most people, I think, don't believe Tony Evers will win and win handily, um, and that. I guess if I was making a prediction and putting on my political pundit hat, I would probably say the same thing. I, for whatever it's worth, I voted for Lowell Holtz because I think we need to recognize that in many school districts, what we are doing with the status quo is not working. And I think it's time to, to change those up. And so to the extent that the state superintendent of schools could be an agent of change, I, I think 
it's more likely that Lowell Holtz is going to be that than Tony Evers. And that was my thinking on that. So that is the statewide elections. If you are listening to me in Milwaukee County, and I'm going to get up on my soapbox for a minute because this is one of my, my outrages here. There are, in Milwaukee County, we have, I, I want to say there's about 47 or 48 circuit court judgeships. I, I could be off. There, there could be one or, or two more. I, I sort of lose track. But as we often talk about, when we discuss crime issues on this program, one of the recurring themes is what in the you-know-what was that person doing out on the street? Jeff, name the name. Say what judge set some ridiculously low bail. Tell us the name of the judge who approved you know, putting somebody out um, after an armed carjacking on a $500 signature bail, and then the guy goes off and kills somebody. Tell us the name of the judges. And I, I appreciate that that is a legitimate concern. But here is the other reality. Judges, once, essentially, once you get either appointed or elected, and generally speaking, you know, if you're elected, it's an open seat. That is, there's, you're not running against an incumbent. You are essentially guaranteed a job for life. They are six-year terms, and nobody runs against sitting judges. I counted this morning on the ballot. There is, in Milwaukee County, there are, I believe, 13 judges who are up for re-election. And I went down the list, and I, I know most of them. And of the 13, there's a couple really good ones. There's a couple okay ones, and there's a couple of judges that trust me. Trust me, if they were in private practice, you would not hire them to do the most routine legal matter available. You know, and I, I was trying to think of an analogy. I, I don't know. But, you know, if, if, if these judges, and not, it's not all of them that are running for re-election. Like I say, you know, if you look at the Milwaukee County bench, it's like, it's like any business. You have some really good people. You have some, you know, so-so people. And then you have a couple clunkers. Trust me, there are a couple clunkers on the ballot today. Like, they would not, you would not hire them. You would not trust them to do routine things. And yet they are running unopposed. No opposition at all. They will be elected to another six-year term. And it is so incredibly, incredibly frustrating that you have lawyers who essentially and, – and you know, part of it is – part of it is there is a very practical thing. If you challenge a sitting judge – and you're an attorney, that becomes, you then become very unpopular, including unpopular with other sitting judges, because they don't want, they don't want challengers themselves. They don't want to have to try to raise money. They don't want to have contested battles. So, you know, if you, if you run against a sitting judge, you, and you don't win, you, you got to be prepared to take some, well, you, you're not going to be popular in the courthouse. And plus, I mean, I recognize in some respects being a sitting judge, circuit judge isn't really that good a job. People call you your honor, but, you know, you, you can probably make a lot more money if you're a good lawyer in private practice. But at the ballot today, especially in Milwaukee County, when you go to that ballot, look at how many unopposed judges there are. And you will recognize why, if you wonder why the system is as perhaps screwed up as it is, it's because there is little or no accountability. The only accountability you have to deal with bad judges is through the electoral process. Bad judge, set a crazy bond or whatever, let's vote them out. Well, you can't vote them out if nobody runs against them. And that is the ongoing problem. And the truth is we can name names. We can do everything we want to call out judges for making bad decisions. But unless and until that the system, you get people who challenge judges who aren't any good. 
um, or who routinely make bad decisions, nothing is going to change. And I don't have an answer for that other than to say it is incredibly frustrating. And when I'm looking at the ballot today and I see one judge after another running unopposed, and especially when you see some of the judges that are running unopposed, you just shake your head and you go, well, this explains why the system is as screwed up as it is. Coming up next, another issue on the ballot, at least in Milwaukee County, that I want to discuss with you because this is an opportunity for you to stand up. If you are a taxpayer in Milwaukee County, it's an opportunity for you to stand up and do the right thing. We discuss next. It's 852. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 855, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. The Brewers and Rockies do battle tonight in Game 2 of the series and the season. Bob Euchre and Jeff Levering will have our pregame coverage from Miller Park at 6.05 here on WTMJ, sponsored by Catholic Financial Life. Big story number one, of course, is the statewide election, also local elections, and a referendum in Milwaukee County. And in my opinion, this is an important one to get out and vote for, because you have to understand, the elite, the beautiful people, the beautiful people in Milwaukee, Milwaukee County, the Chris Abley's of the world, aided and abetted by the Journal Sentinel editorial board. Do they still have editorials? Oh, every once in a while, they are out there telling you, if you live in Milwaukee County, that you need to once again raise your taxes. There is an advisory referendum. It is just an advisory referendum, but it asks whether those of us who live in Milwaukee County want to double our newly imposed wheel tax, raising it from $30 to $60. Wheel tax is, of course, the automobile registration fee. We all pay, what, $75 to to the state um, every year to register your car. If you live in Milwaukee County, there is an extra registration, Milwaukee, the city of, there's an extra registration fee, a wheel tax. The Milwaukee County Board just imposed a $30 wheel tax. So for the privilege of living in Milwaukee County, you now have to pay an extra $30 per car on top of the state registration fee. And if you happen to live in the city of Milwaukee, which is, of course, in Milwaukee County, you get to pay both of those wheel taxes. Well, Chris Abley, Chris Abley, this is the guy who all in favor of, gee, let, let's tear, let's spend a whole bunch of money tearing up streets, taking away traffic lines so we can put in a space for a quote-unquote high-speed bus that can get you from downtown out to the medical college six minutes faster, even though it, it's going to make the driving there even more difficult than it already is. We can spend millions of dollars for that, but they've decided we need more money for public transportation. This is, of course, and yes, I'm aware of the irony that we need more money for public transportation. At the same time, we are building, we're spending $100-plus million for a trolley line that goes for 2.1 miles in downtown Milwaukee. In any event, Abley wants a $60 wheel tax. It just went into effect at $30, and it's $30 right now per car. So if you and your spouse each have a car, you are paying an extra $60 every year to register your car. If you've got you know, teenagers, for example, and a third car in the family, you'll be paying an extra $90. Not satisfied with that, the Journal Sentinel Editorial Board, Chris Abley, and at least some county supervisors want to take that newly imposed $30 wheel tax and double it to $60. Well... You can decide whether you want to go down this route or not. And as I've often argued in Milwaukee County, we get the government we deserve because we vote for some of these yahoos. But this is an opportunity for you to go out and say, you know what? Enough is enough. We are tired of raising our taxes. We are not going to be fooled again. 
You've just imposed a $30 tax. We're not going to support doubling it. Now, even if even if this advisory referendum gets shot down, even if 70% of people vote no, it's only advisory. So that doesn't mean that the county board or the county executive can't continue to push for this, because believe me, they will. But this is at least an opportunity for people like me who live in Milwaukee County to go out and say, no, you know, we are we are tired of being treated like, you know, ducks who are being plucked. We're about ready to say no. No more of these massive increases, and you've just imposed a $30 wheel tax. Why don't we at least let this play out for maybe a couple years before we decide whether you need to double the tax? The effect of this, you know what the practical effect of this is? Law-abiding citizens will end up paying it. It was also going to cause more and more people simply to avoid registering their cars in the first place. And, of course, we know that there's no real penalty for doing that. So uh, the more expensive you make it, the more noncompliance you're going to have. It is only going to stick the middle class and or the law-abiding citizens. This is one of the opportunities you have to get out and vote no if you live in Milwaukee County. Say no to once again raising your taxes. All right, big thing number two is coming up. Uh, at least one former Obama administration official has some explaining to do. Stick around. It's 859. It's 914. Jeff Ratner, 620 WTMJ. Get to know the people behind the headlines at Insight 2017, hosted by yours truly at the Country Springs Hotel in Pewaukee on Wednesday, April 19th. See Governor Scott Walker up close, personal, like you have never seen him before. Hear the behind-the-scenes stories of his presidential bid, what he learned from the campaign, how he views his political future, both statewide and nationally. Um, There are only 15 days left until Insight 2017. Get your tickets online, 620WTMJ.com, and check out the full guest list also at WTMJ.com. While you're there, check out our, our mobile app section. Um, you have the opportunity to download podcasts. I know a lot of people are downloading podcasts to this program. I very much appreciate it, in addition to a lot of the other regular WTMJ programming and um, some special podcasts, some voices that you don't hear otherwise. All right, we have our first winner. Lindsay from Shorewood is our first winner in our Follow the Brewers contest. She wins a four-pack of tickets to see the Brewers play the Cardinals at Miller Park later on this month. She is also qualified to be our weekly grand prize winner, um, one person whose name we draw on Friday. And we will qualify somebody at 9:10 on Friday. Then later on, um, from the since it's Tuesday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, we will have four daily winners. One of those four people will be randomly selected to follow the Brewers on the road. We're sending them on a road trip to uh, Pittsburgh to see the Brewers play the Pirates. So that'll be a lot of fun. We do this. We'll do this approximately at the same time every day for the course of the contest. How cool is that? So be listening tomorrow for your chance to win. All right. Big thing number two. Former National Security Advisor. Former U.S. Ambassador. Susan Rice. In a whole bunch of trouble. Yeah, she was the ambassador to the United Nations and a national security advisor in trouble. Reports suggest that she was behind a request to, quote unquote, unmask the names of Trump transition officials who were caught on wiretaps. Now, what does this mean? All right. Let's back up a step. As, and I'll, I'll give you some like an ins, inside story from somebody who, who used to run wiretaps in, in another life. All right, when you get a wiretap, 
what you do is you have the right to tap somebody's phone because, well, at least in a criminal context, you believe that that person might be using the phone to further criminal activities. So you get a wiretap, the court-authorized wiretap, on that person's phone, and then you get the right to listen in. Well, not every phone call involves criminal activity. You know, you might have somebody that uses their phone, and yes, every fifth or sixth call is going to be a drug deal, but there might be a lot of other calls as well. Well, the way the law works is if it's clear that it is not a a call that involves, say, criminal activity, you are only able to listen long enough to the call to be able to determine that it's the phrase is pertinent, that it's not a pertinent call. I mean, somebody's calling, you know, to order you know, to, to check on their dry cleaning or something. that That's not a pertinent call. And then you are supposed to hang up. You do, however, make a note as to who it was that was called. Okay, you've got a wiretap on Jeff Wagner's phone. You know, at, at 1.32 p.m., Wagner made this phone call. It turns out it's to the, the dry cleaners. We listened for 30 seconds. Once we found out he was just checking on when his shirts are going to be ready, you know, we hung up. So you will have a lot of calls to non-pertinent People by non-pertinent meaning just just folks that you know happen to be on the other end uh, of a call that was not otherwise incriminating. Well, the same thing is true with some of these national security wiretaps. You know, there there will be calls that are made to you know people who aren't the subject of the wiretaps. They're just you know either getting the call or they're making a call to the particular number. Under the law, when somebody's is that when their name is incidentally collected. So, for example, if you've got a wiretap on a, on a Russian diplomat and that Russian diplomat makes a call to an American citizen and there's nothing incriminating, there's nothing criminal, it's just that the call that somebody has made. The, under the law, the names of those people that are called are supposed to be what is called masked, M-A-S-K-E-D, masked. In other words, it's not supposed to be made public because the, the person has done nothing wrong. I mean, they've just they've just received a phone call from somebody who was being the subject of a wiretap. So what happens is when there are reports about the calls, unless there's something incriminating, the, the names on the only reports are supposed to be blacked out or redacted Again, unless the subject matter of what they are talking about is national security, um, crime, or if their security is being threatened in any way. But, for example, if, if, if again, somebody who's being wiretapped by the NSA happens to call me and invite me, hey, you, you, you want to let, set up a play date, your kids and my kids or whatever, my name is supposed to be redacted. It has nothing to do with national security or anything like, like that. That's the way the law works. Now, there are certain loopholes and ways that you can kind of make this public, but Americans are supposed to be protected from incidental collection. All right, that's, that protects your privacy, especially if you haven't done anything wrong. Well, there are reports that are now out there now suggesting that Susan Rice, who was the former national security advisor under Barack Obama, before Obama left power, made efforts to unmask, in other words, release the names of various Trump transition officials who were incidentally caught on some of these wiretaps. 
So, I mean, again, the idea would be there's some Russian diplomat who's, you know, being wiretapped. We tap wire. Apparently, we tap all these Russians that are in this country. We wiretap, and that's fine. They have these non-incriminating, incidental conversations with people who are responsible in the Trump administration. And apparently, Susan Rice was making efforts to make sure that those names, which were under the law supposed to be masked, redacted, hidden, or whatever, were in fact included in reports, which were then distributed to all sorts of people, which then makes it very, very easy for pretty much anybody to leak them. Now, these are what these allegations are right now. Don't know exactly where it's going to go, but it does make sense to me because obviously, as I've been saying all along, I I don't believe that there was electronic necessarily surveillance by the government of Trump officials directly. But there could have been certainly some of this indirect stuff that was going on. Again, Trump transition officials who have business with Russians or whatever talking to them so their names surface on these reports. It is supposed to be masked. It is not masked. And now at least some suggestions are the reason this was not masked, the reason it was not hidden like it's supposed to be under the law, is because of the National Security Advisor at the time, Susan Rice, who was trying to make this stuff public. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. If this is in fact true, I think, number one, it is appalling. Number two, I think Susan Rice may have some criminal responsibility and certainly has some civil responsibility to the names of, in other words, might perhaps be subject to lawsuits, to the names of the American citizens whose names were supposed to be protected but apparently weren't because, candidly, I think it's pretty clear that if these names, members of Trump transition officials, were made public in this context – It was for political purposes in an effort to potentially embarrass members of the Trump transition team. And I think it's a heck of a big deal. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. If Susan Rice really was responsible for unmasking names, I think she needs to be held accountable. And I think this is something that needs a full-scale investigation. You know, is there an Obama administration official that was going about trying to, well, have the rules ignored for the purposes of embarrassing members of the Trump transition team? 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If this happened, does Susan Rice deserve to be held accountable? I say you bet. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. If you want to join us, 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. It's 923. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Nine twenty-five. Jeff Wagner, six twenty. WTMJ. Neil Gorsuch's nomination to the Supreme Court cleared one hurdle yesterday, but an even larger one looms at the end of the week. At the latest from Washington, and the potential of a GOP nuclear option at three twenty today during Wisconsin's afternoon news. Now, Susan Rice, former Obama administration official, is no no stranger. To, to controversy. She was the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., and she was the one that the Obama administration trotted out on several Sunday news shows to um, 
essentially advanced the theory that the September 11, 2012 attacks on the U.S. consulate in Libya were triggered by the Internet video. Remember that? And that was the thing that came up with the whole Hillary Clinton thing about, you know, what, what does it really matter, her response to Senator Ron Johnson. But, you know, this idea that instead of being a terrorist attack, which I think everybody recognized that this was, the idea that the Obama administration tried to peddle that, oh, this was because of some anti-Muslim video that was circulating – a story that I think they knew at the time was absolutely, totally false. Susan Rice was the woman that they sent out to try to peddle that story. She was the one who later on, in 2014, um, went on TV and said that Sergeant uh, Bo Bergdahl, who was the guy that walked away from his post and got captured from the Taliban, um, served the United States with honor and distinction, and that he wasn't simply a hostage. He was an American prisoner of war captured on the battlefield, which is, of course, you know, she's trotting this out to try to justify the, the prisoner exchange that Obama arranged to get him back, and he released a bunch of terrorists in return for that. Oh, no, no, Bo, Bo Bergdahl, he, he's, he's an American hero. We, this is what we have to do to get our prisoners of war back. Well, Bo Bergdahl was many things. He was not a prisoner of war. He was a guy who, at least in my opinion, deserted his post um, and ended up getting caught. Lots of Americans spent lots of time and effort trying to find him, putting their lives in danger. And there's some question about whether or not anybody actually lost their life in searching for Bo Bergdahl. But the bottom line is Susan Rice was one of these people that, again, the administration trotted out as the front woman to say, oh, no, 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 he, he, he's, he's an American here. He was a prisoner of war. No, he was a guy who deserted his post and ended up getting caught. And it's unfortunate he ended up getting caught. But you walk off your post, you desert your post, you know, bad things are going to happen, and Candidly, there's the court martial that's going on now, and I think he ends up deserving what he gets. So this is that same Susan Rice who now is linked with reports that she was involved in this unmasking. Again, making the decision, and candidly, if she was responsible for this, it had to be a political decision, making the trying to figure out ways to, again, have names of Trump administration transition, Trump transition officials who apparently were incidentally caught on on taped on wiretap conversations by incidentally caught i don't imply that there was anything going wrong they were just having conversations that apparently did not involve criminal activity, did not involve natural, national security. They were just on the either receiving end or placing end of phone calls of people who happened to be subject to electronic surveillance. Under the law, their names are supposed to be protected. They are supposed to be masked. They are not supposed to be included in reports because the reality is that once you include them in reports, the reports are then disseminated to lots of people who then make the decision whether they want to leak these reports, because even though you're not allowed to do that legally, once those names are out there, we, we know that there's lots of people who decide to make these leaks for political purposes. But it now is suggested that Susan Rice might be the person behind getting this entire ball rolling. Let's get these names unmasked. Let's get them included in reports, because then we know that these names will be out there at some point in time. If, in fact, she did this, like multiple sources say, number one, there needs to be a criminal investigation by the Department of Justice to determine whether or not laws were broken. Number two, what needs to happen is, again, some of the people whose reputations were hurt by this need to start seriously considering lawsuits because I don't think she's protected at all. If she, in fact, was responsible for doing this, this is where, in addition to criminally investigating her, those people whose reputations might have been damaged by this breach 
I think should be looking at lawsuits and suing her pants off. It's 935, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Regular listeners will notice something a little bit different. We are debuting our, we've got brand new bumper music. Actually, Honda's been working hard on that. My producer today and always, Hondo, from... Uh, songs of my life, you know, rock and roll stuff. Where you know we're, we're back to uh, that's Doctor My Eyes by Jackson Brown. So we're it's kind of like songs of Wagner's life. It's one of the most common professions in society, and it's becoming more and more dangerous every day. What is it? Scafidi and Billstead have the answer today at twelve thirty-five. Be sure to tune in. Big thing number three: prepare for the nuclear option. One of the concerns I I had and one of the questions I had when Donald Trump was running for president was what sort of justice would he appoint to the United States Supreme Court? And I know the argument that many people made was that, hey, the reason we have to vote for Trump as opposed to Hillary is because Donald Trump will select a better appointment, make a better appointment to the United States Supreme Court than Hillary would. And the Supreme Court is extremely important. And one of the concerns I had was, all right, why, what do we know? Do we really know that? Do we know what kind of justice that, that Donald Trump will appoint? Well, all right, President Trump, it is now President Trump, in my opinion, he hits a home run. The selection of Neil Gorsuch to the United States Supreme Court is an absolutely perfect selection. Neil Gorsuch is a mainstream conservative judge. And you would expect a Republican president to appoint a conservative justice. You would appoint a Democratic president to support and appoint a, a liberal justice. But but Neil Gorsuch is not out of the mainstream at all. He is a very, very mainstream conservative justice incredibly well-respected by his peers, incredibly well-liked, and and candidly, uh, pretty much non-controversial. There were contentious hearings, you know, for for several days, what, last week, and and the Democrats didn't lay a glove on him. I mean, there, there is nothing that you can look at in Neil Gorsuch's writings or in his background or in his personal life, which would convince you that this is some out of the mainstream, you know, wacko justice who should not be on the state, on the United States Supreme Court. That's just the reality. He is, again, the perfect type of justice that you would expect to come from a Republican president. Well, the Democrats don't like this. They don't want, they're, first of all, they're still mad over the fact that um, the last Obama appointee did not get a hearing in the last six months of the Obama administration from a Republican-controlled Senate. So they're mad about that. Number two, they're looking at the opinion polls, the public polls, and they see that Donald Trump is polling around a 36 or 37 or 38 percent approval rating. So they have decided, especially at the urging of the far left wing of the Democratic Party, the people that provide money for elections and things like that, that, that they they have just simply they cannot go along with anything that Trump does. And the pressure they're getting in the Democrats in the Senate are getting from the left is you just have to obstruct. You cannot go along with anything that Trump wants to do. And if you do. For example, if you allow an up or down vote on the Neil Gorsuch nomination, you know, we're going to turn on you. We're going to say that you are a traitor. Even if you vote no against him, we're going to consider you to be a traitor and we're not going to fund you when you run for reelection next time. And we're going to try to find candidates even further to the left than you are to run against you. So that that's the pressure that is coming, despite the fact that Neil Gorsuch is a very, very mainstream justice. 
He's scheduled to come up for an up or down vote by the end of the week. The way the Senate rules work, and it's very, very arcane, but you can filibuster a nominee. In other words, just go to the floor, kind of like the movie Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and talk and talk and talk, and you can filibuster a nominee, and it takes 60 votes to overcome a filibuster. Well, there's 52 Republicans, which means eight Democrats would have to agree to end the filibuster and have an up or down vote. Well, there's not going to be eight Democrats to do it. I think four have announced that they'll give the guy an up or down vote. I, I don't think that there's going to be another four. So this means that under the current rules in the Senate, Gorsuch is not going to be able to get an up or down vote. So he can't be confirmed. But it doesn't matter whether it's Neil Gorsuch or, you know, Hondo Jones or Jeff Wagner. This was going to happen to any Republican nominee, and it will continue to happen to Republican nominees. In other words, the Democrats right now are prepared to block any Trump appointment to the U.S. Senate through these filibuster rules. So how do you get around this? Well, you pull a Harry Reid. You change the, the rules. By a majority vote, and keep in mind there's 52 Republican senators, all you need is 51 votes to change the rules. You can do away with the filibuster. There is, of course, a precedent for doing this, because when the Democrats controlled the Senate under Harry Reid, they did away with the filibuster for appellate court judges and circuit court judges, but they left it in place for Supreme Court justices. But... Now that you've got the Democrats that are blocking this, they're, they're saying, hey, we're not going to go along with it. And the Republicans, I mean, when I talked to Ron Johnson on the air a couple of weeks ago, he said, no, Neil Gorsuch is going to be confirmed. Yesterday, Mitch McConnell very clearly said, you know, Neil Gorsuch is going to be the, the next justice on the Supreme Court. But what is happening is the only way that is going to occur is if the Republicans are willing to use the so-called nuclear option that is change this arcane rule which would uh, then allow confirmation by a majority of the votes. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Look, I, 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 I believe in tradition as much as the next guy. I, I really do. But the reality is we live in different times. And the idea that a qualified judge could not get an up or down vote to be on the Supreme Court that, I think, is absolutely absurd. And if the Democrats are going to decide that this is what we're going to do, we are not going to give this man an up or down vote. And the truth is, they wouldn't give any Trump nominee an up or down vote. I think the Republican majority has no choice but to change the rules, go to the nuclear option, Get a majority votes and get Neil Gorsuch confirmed. It'll probably be 52-48, but it is important to fill this vacancy on the U.S. Supreme Court, and elections have consequences. And here you have a Republican House of Representatives, a Republican-controlled Senate, and you have a Republican Senate to allow politically motivated Democrats, afraid of losing funding in the next election, to block a qualified person from being appointed to the United States Supreme Court, I think is appalling. 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage talk and text line. Is it time for the Senate to go nuclear and to get Judge Gorsuch on the U.S. Supreme Court? I say you bet. We discuss next. 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage talk and text line. It's 942. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner. 
946, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, Sharon in Menominee. Sharon, good morning. Hi. Hi, Sharon. What do you think? I I think that the Democrats are doing that to the Republicans because the Republicans did the same thing to Obama. And I don't think they should change the rule just in favor of themselves. They should have the same rules that all the presidents have. Well, now, Harry Reid, now, 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 Harry Reid... When he, when the Democrats controlled the Senate, they changed the rules with regard to all other federal judges to allow them to get confirmed. Because get now Obama's appointees to get confirmed. So isn't this really, if they do it, isn't this just kind of like turnabout is fair play? Well, that's why the Democrats did it. Mm-hmm. Are doing it because they want to change the rules. I don't think they changed the rules. I mean, I don't keep up that much, but. I just heard that, and I thought they but, shouldn't change the rules. Well, well, here's the problem, too, Sharon. If you don't change the rules, the Democrats have made it very, very clear that it doesn't matter who President Trump appoints to the Supreme Court. That person is not going to get an up or down vote. So, I mean, do we really want to have four years where there is one or more vacancies on the Supreme Court? Well, no, but but they they didn't do the up or down vote for for the one that Obama picked. Well, right, right. Merrick, right. Thanks, Erica. You're, you're right. This wasn't a filibuster. Now, with Merrick Garland, who was the Obama appointee, um, he, he didn't he didn't get a vote because, first of all, the Republicans controlled the U.S. Senate. That's number one. Secondly, it was in the last several months of the Obama administration. The Republicans took the position, which had a lot of historical support, that, you know, as a lame duck president in the last few months of the administration, well, we should we should wait and let's see the election. Let's see how the election turns out and then let the new president make the appointment. Now, that was a strategy that had some risk, because my guess is if Hillary Clinton had won and the Democrats had controlled the U.S. Senate, which is what a lot of people thought was going to happen, what you would have seen is a much more liberal justice appointed than, than Merrick Garland would have been. So that was the risk that the Republicans took. It was a risk that panned out. But here again, here's the reality. Given the fact that there's not too many Democrats that seriously argue that Neil Gorsuch is not qualified to be a justice, this is all just whether it's we want to call it political payback or you know pandering to the far left of the party, or do you think Donald Trump is vulnerable or whatever? The reality is, if you if, if you don't change the rules and Neil Gorsuch doesn't get an up or down vote, it doesn't matter who it is. You're going to have a Supreme Court vacancy for the next four years. And, you know, what what happens when the next justice retires or resigns? I mean, do you want to go four years with the Democrats being able to simply say, OK, we're going to have a four four tie? I mean, that's I understand the politics of this. And I get it. But you know what? I think the reality is that if you this is this is an easy decision. If I'm a Republican U.S. senator, because there's there's no there's no blowback for this at all. I mean, there's no blowback at all. The people that elected you want to see you do your job. And I've always thought this filibuster thing is an arcane rule. But now that politics have become so totally divisive, I don't think that they have any choice to do away with this. And candidly, I, I think you got to get people on the United States Supreme Court. You, maybe you disagree. Maybe you think that Merrick Garland should have gotten an up or down vote. But that's that's water under the bridge right now. I don't think you can go another four years allowing 
you know, a Democratic minority to obstruct and keep a vacancy and maybe more on the Supreme Court. So this is one. If you've got to change the rules, change the rules. And you know what? I don't think there's any political blowback from this at all. Bob in Appleton. Bob, you're on 620 WTMJ. Well, you just kind of took my thunder right there, Jeff, what I was calling about. I can't quite remember, but I don't think the uh, law, the rules were changed in the Senate until the 1970s. I don't think the filibusters existed prior to that. I'm not sure what party did the change, right. but it was done for obstructionism purposes right. only. And what it does is it, it, it hurts both parties in the long run. I think the Republican Party right now should totally eliminate that is a Senate rule. Yeah, and and I mean, from a political perspective, it, it it's a it's a free space. It, it costs the Republicans nothing because you know people who are you know conservatives, you know, they, they want to see Neil Gorsuch. Uh, they they want to see that this Neil Gorsuch. They want to see him appointed. The Democrats are trying to obstruct, not because he's not qualified, but just because they want to obstruct. So I mean, change the rules. There's no political fallout. He gets on the bench and. Okay, maybe it alters the rules of the Senate, but so what? I, it's, it's an arcane rule in the first place. Exactly. The Senate functioned perfectly well for 200 yeah. years before they brought it into existence. Yep. Thanks for the call. 414-799-1620 is the number. Let's talk to Brad in Marshfield. Brad, good morning. You're on 620 WTMJ. Uh, good morning. Um, I, I just think, you know, that, that 60 rules are archaic. I mean, right. if, you go to, if you go to your city government, any, t- any type of government, it's... It's majority rules. I mean, I, I think personally, I think this, uh, the rank and file ought to take it to that, take the 50 vote, say majority rules and, yeah. you know, get rid of the six, get rid of that 60 rule permanently. Anything right. that comes up, you know, nominations and everything else, that's what, that's what's messed. That's what's messing us up. Well, I, um, see, I, I agree with you because, I, I mean, I understand that the, 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 the language is, oh, the Senate is the greatest deliberative body in the world. No, this isn't about deliberations. This is about pure obstructionism that is driven by yeah. politics. And, I mean, I get it, and both sides do it, but that's why elections have consequences. And, yeah. you know, one of the consequences is Trump won, the Republicans won, Trump gets to appoint his people to the United States Supreme Court, period. Well, you know, I, I just wish the Democrats would just get over it. I mean, you know, um, I, I remember that de- that, that debate where uh, the uh, Hillary Clinton turned to uh, Donald Trump and said, "Well, would you will you accept will you accept the results?" I think, you know, um, and and she was kind of cocky about that. And I think, you know, it, it's time for Hillary Clinton and her people to accept. Well, know. right, you accept the results. Well, that I mean, thanks. That that's not. I mean, see, and that's not going to happen because I mean, the, the political reality of this, and I'm a political realist, is that you know, right now. Who knows what the, the climate's going to be like a year from now? You know, Ronald Reagan, who I think certainly was the greatest president in my lifetime, Ronald Reagan you know, started out really rocky. I mean, his first year and a half or so, not that popular at all. And then the stuff that he started doing started to work. And then people, you know, warmed up to him and, he, he, again, you know, went on to sail to reelection. Right now, Democrats think Donald Trump is, is vulnerable. They look at these approval ratings, and they see his approval ratings are you know below 40%. And so then you've got the folks on the hardcore left, the ones who are you know showing up at the Washington Nationals games with the impeach Trump banner. We'll talk about that in a little bit. You know, th- those are the ones that are out there, and, and they're driving the discussion. So this isn't about the Senate being a great deliberative body. 
This is about the Tammy Baldwins of the world, who's up for re-election in, you know, in less than two years, just deciding that they are going to obstruct because it is the message that they are getting from the far left wing of the party. And you can't allow the far left wing of the Democratic Party and the liberal activists to essentially say, all right, we're not going to fill vacancies on the Supreme Court. Charlie in Northern Illinois. Charlie, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I certainly agree that the Republicans should invoke the option if if need be. Uh, I think it's a shame because if the Senate were still a collaborative body, the, the 60 vote framework does yes. sort of incent the president to nominate people who are not as extreme as otherwise. I mean, I think if the 60 vote thing goes in the future, we're going to have the, the, it opens the door for right. more extreme justices. So now we get a Supreme Court that could be as polarized as the Senate. Right. Unfortunately, I think it's coming. The rule is going one way or the other. And if the Republicans are fool enough, foolish enough to think that, yeah. you know, if they hold on to it, then the, then the Democrats will next time. You know, it's uh, here's right. the bridge. And yeah, you know, you, you make a good point. If, if Hillary Clinton had won, and let's say, like many people thought, the Democrats had taken control of the U.S. Senate with, with 51 votes, for the sake of argument. Do you think Do you think that there's any way in the world that whoever the Democratic leader was, Chuck Schumer, whoever, that they wouldn't have immediately, just like Harry Reid did, gotten rid of the filibuster right. rule? To, right. I mean, exactly. That, that was and inevitable. It was going to happen. Would. I mean, it, it's not even a, a secret. You know, it's, it's out there. So. Yeah. Now, I, again, happen. right. No, it's right. It, it, it's got to. I mean, it, at some point in time. Now, maybe you can alter the rules. When, when I talked to Senator Johnson a couple of weeks ago, I mean, he, he's into Senate tradition and he was saying, well, maybe there's some things that we can do that could still preserve the rule. But, for example, like with a filibuster, actually make you filibuster, actually, you know, make you go onto the floor and actually make somebody speak for days and days and days that they, they don't do that. It's just like if somebody says, OK, we're not going to vote for we're not going to be part of the 60. You, you can filibuster essentially without filibustering, without standing on the floor, what, whatever, whatever they're going to do. The important thing is to get Neil Gorsuch an up or down vote. And if the Tammy Baldwins of the world want to vote against him, go with God. That That's fine. Then you get held accountable a year and a half from now when you run for re-election. But to allow this to be stalled in this fashion would be appalling. You know, Jeff Wagner, Jane, you a baseball fan? You yes. a baseball You are, yeah. <laughs> I, well, I, I'm a huge baseball fan, and I had a lot of fun at, at opening day, and it was great to do those interviews. It, it, here, is my, here is the problem that I think that they need to, that baseball needs to address, and I don't have an answer to it. Um, yesterday's game, three and a half hours long. It, and that's just, maybe I am, and I understand there's a lot of traditionalists who just absolutely love that, but I, I don't think people have the attention span to sit for three and a half hours. I think you're right. I mean, it's just, and I don't know, and I understand that some people say, well, we love the pace of the game and things like that, but but nowadays, that's a long time to, that three and a half hours, there were seven pitching changes from the Brewers. I mean, seven, and I, I don't know how you necessarily address this, but people just don't have the patience to sit for three and a half hours. We have the attention span of fleas. Right, yeah, fruit flies, yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and it, it's just, and, and plus the commitment. I mean, a couple of years ago, I, I went to I went to a game, and it was like a, it was a school night. It was a game in May, and it was the it was literally it was two and a half hours, and they were in the fifth inning. And I'm watching all these people that are leaving, and it's not because they're not baseball fans, but it's because they've got to get up and go to work the next day or or school, or, or school with their kids and sure. stuff. And I wish I had – because I, I love the game. I love – I'm a huge Brewers fan. I, I love baseball. But I was 
okay, I, I didn't go to the, after I got done with my show yesterday. I I I was just tired because I gotten in late from Las Vegas and you know did the show, got up early to do that, and I was just tired. So I, I went home. I took a nap. I turned, you know, I, I, I turned on the radio, and, and it's still it's only in the sixth inning, and I've been sleeping for a couple hours, and it's just I saw it was three and a half hours, and it was an entertaining, it was a close, hard fought baseball game. So I don't know what the answer is, but I, I think especially with I don't want to be one of those like hey kids get off my lawn, but especially with younger people who are used to the video game thing, you just can't sit for three and a half hours. It's a big it's a big time commitment. It is right, right, it and really an attention is. span thing. I was in not this last time, but I was in Las Vegas a while ago, and I was sitting at this bar. Surprise, follows surprise, and I'm talking to these people from from England, and we were watching. There was a college football game. It was a Saturday afternoon, and it was going on four hours. And these people from England were saying, you know, for all you you Americans, you know, you know, you're so in general impatient. We don't understand how you can watch these things that go three and a half or four hours and like soccer games it's two hours i mean it, it, the clock runs it's two 45 minute halves a 15 minute half time they say you, you know the thing is going to be a little over two hours you can plan your day however if they're playing cricket that's an entirely, <laughs> well, that's a whole, that's an yes. entirely right. different thing I, I, so i'm sitting in las vegas getting lectured on on sports by these two people <laughs> from from england but you know what I, I i couldn't argue about it so i don't know what the answer is but for everybody who and i didn't see what the I didn't see what the stands looked like at the end of what was a close game, but I got to believe a lot of people, I got to believe a lot of people left, and they had 43,000 people there to start, but my guess is a lot of those people weren't there at the end. Well, but think about it, too, then it's going to take you an hour to get out of there. Right. You know, it's, it's, especially in a big attendance, high attendance game like yesterday's, you know, that's, a, that's another hour you're going to take on to your day. Right, plus whatever you did beforehand. So, I mean, we're, and again, I, I don't have the answer. Go to Miller Park, listen to the Brewers game. I'm a huge baseball fan, and I will continue to be, but I, I think... And I understand they're doing things that, that nibble around the edges, like, okay, for intentional walks nowadays, you don't have to actually throw the four pitches. You can just say, go to first base, and, and those type of things. But it is it is a fundamental issue, and you know that three and a half hours is a long time. And at least at Miller Park, you're sitting in a climate-controlled atmosphere. Could you imagine, I mean, sitting out at... Well, a Wrigley Field or at uh, whatever they're calling the White Sox Stadium now or in Minnesota or Detroit, you know, the upper Midwest where you're outside and it's cold and it's drizzly early spring games and it's 40 degrees outside and the game's running, you know, three, three and a half hours. I mean, it's just I don't know the answer frustrates me and I'm a big baseball fan, but I think that they have to figure out how to address that. Quick reminder, Insight 2017, it is Wednesday, April 19th, two weeks from uh, tomorrow. Um, Our guest list, I'm really excited about this, announced guests so far, Governor Scott Walker, your chance to see him up close and personal. In addition, we've got three justices from the state Supreme Court who are going to be joining us, and you almost never get a chance. These are are people that you, you read about, you hear about, but you almost never get a chance to see in person. Bob Babich and Don Smiley from Summerfest. We'll be talking about Summerfest past, present, and future. Joe Bartolotta of Bartolotta Restaurant Group fame. We're going to be talking about – Joe's had a really interesting career, and we're going to be talking about you know his involvement – in the restaurant industry and dining trends and changes over the years. That should be really fun as well. Wayne Larravee, the voice of the Green Bay Packers, is going to be with us. Going to be a lot of fun. I'm very much looking forward to it. Again, it's two weeks from tomorrow. You can go to WTMJ.com. Click on our icon, purchase tickets for Jeff Wagner's Insight 2017. And I hope to see you two weeks from tomorrow at the Country Springs Hotel. Should be a lot of fun. All right. Here's the story. Even, all right, there's always a conflict between First Amendment rights and employers' rights for 
the workforce. This is a story about a guy who works for the Department of Transportation. He's a DOT employee. He he is an, an analyst. And what he decides to do is he try he shows up at work. Now, the, the state has this rule that employees are told not to reveal political affiliations at work. So they're told don't you know don't don't wear political buttons you know don't don't wear those type of buttons when you're on the clock you are supposed to be politically neutral now we understand sometimes that does not happen you have the chancellor at UW across who's a big political lefty who's you know sending out emails on on state resources you know criticizing Donald Trump's policies and things like that but state workers are not supposed to show political affiliations at work. And I think most of us would argue that that's a pretty good rule. So here's the deal. The guy is an analyst with the Department of Transportation. He shows up at work wearing a T-shirt that says Hillary for prison. And he's wearing this T-shirt under a sport coat. But but it's very clear, you know, it's not covered up. I mean, people can see that, that he's wearing a Hillary for prison T-shirt, and he's wearing it to work. So what happens is his supervisors come in and they say, look, you know, you're, you're, not, you're not supposed to wear this, all right? This is inappropriate clothing for work, you know, as a state employee. If you want to wear the Hillary Clinton, Hillary for prison T-shirt, fine, but you do it on, on your own time. He responds and says, well, look, I don't find this T-shirt at all to be offensive. And by the way, as I wear this T-shirt when I'm working, he's a DOT analyst, I, I travel around the state, he says I get nothing but positive comments when I'm wearing the T-shirt. So the, the bosses say, no, it, it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, you're, you're not to wear this. And he apparently ignores the instructions not to wear it, and he does. They told him, you know, you're not supposed to wear inappropriate clothing. Um, this, we believe that this is inappropriate. Don't wear it. He wears it. And so what they do is they suspend him for three days for wearing the T-shirt. He appeals this three-day suspension. He says, look, this isn't offensive. Um I should be allowed to wear this. Now, the reason this is in the news is because um, this went before uh, the state Wisconsin Employment Relations Commission, um, who had to decide whether it was appropriate to suspend him for wearing this T-shirt after he'd been told not to. And what they did is they upheld the suspension. They said, no, the state was right to suspend him for wearing this. He was unhappy with that result. Our number, 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Regardless of whether you agree with the sentiment on the T-shirt, Hillary for Clinton, or not, the issue is, is it appropriate for a state employee to wear a shirt like that to work on the job? And when you're thinking about this, whether maybe it's Hillary for Clinton, Hillary for uh, for a prison, maybe it's impeach Trump. I, I don't care. Is it appropriate to wear a shirt like that to work if you are on the clock? And should he have been suspended for continuing to wear the shirt after he had been told not to? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Maybe you will disagree with me on this, but candidly, in my opinion, regardless of what the message is, I think it is inappropriate for state employees to wear political clothing like this. And 
after the guy had been told not to, to me, once he shows up in this shirt, after he'd been told not to, I don't think they have any choice but to suspend him. So I think he deserved to be suspended, but what do you think? 414-799-1620 is the number we discuss next. It's 1017. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Ten twenty, Jeff Wagner, six twenty, WTMJ. Jeff and Tosa writes on our WTMJ text line. It's not offensive, but it is inappropriate for any employee, public or private. Um, as a cover your you know what measure, it's best to treat politics at work um, like the Hills Kitchen bar scene in the movie Sleepers, and do not discuss them. Um, four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. We're talking about a state employee. Department of Transportation. He's an analyst. He wears a Hillary for Prison T-shirt under a, a jacket, shows up at work. They tell him not to do it. Um, he continues to do it. They suspend him for three days. He appeals the suspension. He's lost. He ends up losing that. I mean, should he have been able to wear that? Candidly, I mean, I, I think I just think that this rule makes sense. I think employers have the right to have dress codes, and I think for public employees in particular, you don't want them on the job making political statements. And I don't care whether it's an impeach Trump T-shirt or a Hillary for prison T-shirt or a, you know, I support Ron Johnson button or I support Tammy Baldwin button. It's inappropriate for state employees to wear those on state time. Um, Private employees, it's the same thing. I mean, I think it depends on what your employer wants. But if your employer says, no, I don't want this on the work, I don't want you wearing this, I think they have a right to do it. 414-799-1620 is the number. Let's start with uh, Carol in Neosha. Carol, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I am well, thank you. Okay, is this guy getting railroaded because they they Uh, disciplined him? No. You know, we're trying to teach our, our young people and kids to follow rules, and here's a state employee that breaks it. If he do it, does it again, I hope it isn't a suspension, but that they fire him. Mm-hmm. He needs some examples of, you know, fouls. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I'm trying to think. If let, let's and this guy was a, D, a Department of Transportation analyst, but let's say for the sake of argument, he 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 works at the Department of Motor Vehicles. So I go in to get my driver's license renewed, and he's wearing a impeach Trump T-shirt under his jacket. Just for the sake of argument, I don't agree with impeach Trump, but but I mean, he's a public employee, so now I'm dealing with somebody that that's obviously you know expressing their political opinions while they're in work, and it's kind of getting in my face. I I would object to that just like I'm sure some people objected to the Hillary for prison, you know, T-shirt. Right. I, I would, too. I, any political. Right. I just think following rules, and it would be so nice if the majority rules come back. Right. You know, instead of minority rights for everything. No, it, well, it, exactly. Now, now, see, here's here's where it does get tricky. And Mike in West Bend on our text line makes an interesting point. I do believe he should have been suspended. I am, however, disappointed that this only seems to be enforced when the person is a conservative. Teachers are state employees, but they can collectively, you know, act when where they wear Black Lives Matter shirts and suggest that their students do the same. So while I agree, um, I, I would smile a little inside if he didn't see that that's a very that's a very fair point because this is one of the things where you have for example you do have particularly particularly people on the left who end up pushing this and this idea that the teachers all decide we're going to make a statement so we're all going to show up wearing red shirts or wearing armbands or wearing whatever because we make a political statement i i think depending on how they do it and how they go about it i i do think 
that there's issues with that as well. But in this particular case, this was so overt. I mean, again, if all the teachers at, you know, Hondo Middle School show up wearing an impeach Trump T-shirt or a dump Scott Walker T-shirt, I think that they should be in fact, discipline. So to me, this isn't a partisan issue. This is just a fundamental right and wrong issue. Let's talk to, um, let's see, Joseph in Menasha. Joseph, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Morning, Jeff. What yeah, do you think? Inappropriate behavior as well. Um, doesn't sound like this gentleman appreciates his job, kind of thinking maybe uh, the fact that he was just suspended, I mean, it's a huge plus in his favor. Right. And to continue to not get it because he should have gotten it before he even decided to put it on yeah um just i don't know what's going on with him uh but he should be happy he still has a job if he still does have a job yeah well, it's, i mean a state a state job is a great job <laughs> yeah, well well right and, and again i mean it's and apparently like a long look i guess if your boss comes to you and says i think this is inappropriate this is a violation of rules please don't wear it my reaction is either going to be Okay, or fine. You know, I I'm, I'll find a different job. You know, it's it's, it's a free country. Exactly. But no, exactly. Thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Let's talk to Bryce in Milwaukee. Bryce, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. Hey there. Hi. I do think he's an idiot for pushing buttons, but as he is a government employee, his management is also government, and therefore they cannot tell him what he can't wear if they don't have a dress code. That's his right to expression and free speech. Well, the Supreme Court rulings on this matter already. Well, okay. Well, the, the, but I mean, they they do have they they do have general dress code rules. Now, it doesn't say you can't wear a, a Hillary for prison T shirt, but but they can say that you know that they have rules that you're not supposed to you know identify your political affiliations at work. Do you think that that's an unreasonable rule? If it's in the rule book, no. I mean. Well, and, and again, now, I mean, ever since this election, we've been so divisive and looking to attack each other about something stupid like this. So, right. Well, but again, on the cold. Well, I, well, right. Exactly. I mean, right. This is like let's let's go poke the bear, and that's what the guy's doing. But no, I mean, I guess I think employers have the right to, and I think in you know, it's a well-established state rule that you're not supposed to state employees aren't supposed to, you know, identify their political affiliations at work. And while I respect that the guy has the right to, you know, First Amendment freedom of, of speech, that to me doesn't prevent um, employers, in this case the state, from setting reasonable rules as to what you can and cannot wear on, on the job. This is like you can't engage in political activity on the job. This to me is a reasonable sort of rule. I, I don't mean, again, regardless of whether you agree with the sentiment or not, it's kind of like, Okay, it's tough to be too sympathetic to this guy when the bosses tell him don't wear this particular T-shirt and you show up wearing the T-shirt. I think I agree that he's kind of lucky he got off with a three-day suspension. I think employers, even government employees, you know, government employers have the right to set dress codes. It's 1027. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1035, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Today, voters are heading to the polls to vote for state school superintendent. While the race has received a good bit of attention, how important do you think the race is in the grand scheme of things? Count Steve Scafidi among those that say not really, not too much. He will explain during Scafidi and Billstat at 135 today. By the way, he's absolutely correct about that. The the other the other thing, now we, we've talked about... The, the statewide elections, when you go out to vote today, and as I was saying earlier in the program, 
I, I voted this morning about 745. I was number 56, and I think that included – I think they had already run through all the absentee ballots. So this is going to be an extremely, extremely low turnout race statewide. The two statewide elections are Justice and Ed Ziegler, who is going to be one of the justices joining us for Insight 2017 on April 19th. Um, I, I'm pretty confident she is still going to be a sitting Supreme Court justice because she is running unopposed, a conservative justice who, in my opinion, does an absolutely great job. The left couldn't even come up with anybody who's going to run against her. She's running unopposed. So I would presume if her and her husband vote for her and I voted for her and friends and stuff, I, I, I suspect that she's I'm pretty confident in predicting that she's going to win. The other statewide race is for state superintendent of schools, like we were just talking about in the promotion. Um, but in addition, there are a number of referendums. Now, I have not spent a lot of time talking about school referendums because, well, well candidly, they tend to be they, they tend to be rather, rather narrowly. Um, they they tend to be narrowly um, just because of a particular area. The three big school referendums that there's 65 school referendums that are on the ballot today. 65 across the state. The three biggest. Um, there's one in Verona where they want 162 million dollars to build a, a new high school and an auditorium. Um, Green Bay has a 165 million dollar referendum um and this is this is actually they're just asking for operating costs they want to be able to exceed the revenue limit on a non-recurring basis of 10 years 16.5 million dollars per year if you vote for this in green bay well you need to have your head examined but it's 165 million dollars um just to simply say hey we, we want to spend more than we're supposed to Burlington has three referendums, $94.4 million. They want to construct and equip a new middle school, a new performing arts center, et cetera, et cetera. Those are just three of the 65. This, you know, ever since Act 10 was put into place, which gave, which put limits on the abilities of local school officials to just spend like drunken sailors, and that in some cases is an insult to drunken sailors. The, the way to get around and undermine Act 10 has been, okay, let, let's have these different referendums. And then you have, of course, some of the advocates that are there saying, oh, this is terrible, the kids can't learn, we, we need to have these spending referendums, or you know, we, we need $165 million like they're talking about up in Green Bay, you know, $16.5 million a year. And in these low turnout elections, they're able to, you know, get a certain coalition of, I don't know, parents and teachers who go out and vote and get them passed. But, you know, if there is a school spending referendum in your area, I encourage you to look at it closely because, like I say, you know, Act 10 has done a lot to help rein in public costs. But, 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 but. You know, if you're willing to just simply say willy-nilly, here, let's spend $165 million or whatever, you know, don't be surprised if a lot of the gains of Act 10 in your particular district, at least as far as on your tax, uh, your property taxes, don't be surprised to see them go away. So 65 different school referendums. I haven't singled out individual ones because, again, there, there are just so many of these going on. But this is the current trend. Um, administrators saying, oh, we can't live by Act 10. You know, we need more and more and more money. And more and more of them are, are passing. So that's the lesson. Um, until voters start standing up and essentially saying no more, you know, expect to you know have your property taxes continue to go up. All right, coming up next, it doesn't pass the smell test. I'll tell you the story and we'll get your reaction. It's ten forty. Jeff Wagner, six twenty WTMJ.
It is 1044, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Tomorrow at approximately 910 is your next chance to follow the Brewers. Tune in tomorrow at approximately 910. We do this coming out of the 9 o'clock news. And listen for your chance to win a four-pack of tickets to see the Brewers play the Cardinals later this month at Miller Park. That's very cool. But... But also, you get a chance to qualify to follow the Brewers out to Pittsburgh this May. Follow the Brewers, sponsored by West Bend, the Silver Lining, Noodles and Company, and the flagship station of the Brewers, 620 WTMJ. This is an exciting thing. I'm really thrilled to be part of this, and we're going to be doing this for the next several weeks. And again, thanks to our sponsors, in particular, West Bend, the Silver Lining, and Noodles and Company that allow us to do this. All right. Here is the story. The, the former chancellor at, at UW Oshkosh, this guy named Richard Wells, he and his right-hand man um, ha- have been involved in, well, there was a civil suit that was filed in, in January um, by the Department of Justice on behalf of the UW system against former Chancellor Richard Wells and his right-hand man that the suit essentially accused them of funneling university money through the, the UW Oshkosh Foundation. Now, the Oshkosh, the UW Oshkosh Foundation is, well, it, it's supposed to be a, a private thing whose mission is to raise private donations to support university students, faculty programs, and facilities. And, and they're accused of, again, funneling university money through the foundation to help pay for various real estate projects. Um, so, all right. There's all sorts of questionable financial transactions, and I take no position as to how this lawsuit is going to play out. But it, it's bizarre the way this was handled. And obviously, the Department of Justice feels that the UW system was defrauded. Maybe that'll turn out to be the case. Maybe not. But that's not what the story is. The Journal Sentinel reported this over the weekend. All right. The, the ch- former chancellor is a guy named Richard Wells. He was living in a house about a half a mile from from the campus right as he was getting ready to to leave you know leave the job leave the state means he didn't need the house anymore what he did is he went to the UW system and he said hey you know i i'd like you UW system taxpayers i would like you to buy my house and use this as a residence for future chancellors. Let's turn this into the home that future chancellors can live in. And Wells was asking 450000 bucks for this house. Now, you can get a heck of a house in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, for $450,000. But he's asking $450,000. System officials, UW officials, say, no, um, we, we, first of all, the asking price for this property is way too high. And secondly, you know, we, we don't want to own a, another another property. We we just we, we don't want to we don't want to buy another house. No, we, we don't want to spend taxpayer money on this. We don't want another piece of property and what you're asking for is way too high. So then apparently what Wells does, according to the story in the Journal Sentinel, is he goes to this UW Oshkosh Foundation, which again is supposed to be this independent entity that raises private money to help support, you know, university students, faculty programs, and facilities. So he goes to the foundation, and he says, all right, the university's not going to buy my house, but UW Foundation, I want you to buy my house. 
And the foundation apparently agrees to do that, and they pay his asking price of $450,000. So they pay the $450,000 that the UW system refused to pay because they didn't want another property and they thought it was too high. Well, here's where it gets really, really interesting. The sale price, $450,000, was, and I hope you're sitting down, $118,700 above the fair market value of the property. The fair market value is apparently three hundred thirty-one grand. He gets the foundation to buy this house for $450,000. The assessed value of the property was about the same. The assessed value of the property was $328,600. Um, he sells it for $450,000. Now, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, if, as a general rule, if you were trying to get a bank loan, and I think I can say this with, without too much objection, and may, maybe some people have a different story, and you were to go to the bank and say, I want a loan to buy a house f- assessed value of 328000 fair market value of 331000 and I want to pay four hundred fifty grand for it. I don't know that there's any bank in the country that would approve a loan that's that where there's that much of a disparity unless – Essentially, you're coming with almost all cash for this. So again, this is a deal. His asking price is four hundred fifty grand, and it's again somewhere between, depending on whether you're looking at fair market value or assessed value, it, he's getting somewhere between a hundred, around one hundred twenty thousand dollars more than either one of of those. So he he gets it. Now it gets even weirder after. After this happens, the foundation, then he leaves, the foundation then has to sink another sixty-two grand into the house, updating the kitchen, adding a half bath and a coat room, resolving serious water drainage issues, and they have to make extensive repairs, including replacing two bulging concrete patios. So in addition to paying $450,000, which is... Again, a ballpark, 120 grand more than the house was worth. But then they have to sink another $62,000 in it to deal with issues. Now, in a typical reasonable real estate transaction, you know, okay, what happens? You, you, you buy a house, you have the inspection, and you find that there's all sorts of issues like water drainage issues, et cetera, et cetera. What, what do you do? You say to the owner, hey, I, I need you to reduce the price to cover the cost of these. Well, that's not how it worked in this deal. They gave the guy his asking price, which, again, was a ballpark about $120,000 more than the house was arguably worth, at least fair market value or assessed value. And the foundation had to sink another sixty-two grand into it on top of that. Plus, they allowed him to live in the house – rent-free until he moved to Florida 20 months after the sale. So the foundation buys this house. They pay him, again, way more than it is supposed to be worth. They sink sixty-two grand into it, making improvements or necessary repairs, and then they let the guy live there for 20 months. Now, the Journal Sentinel is reporting all all this, and again, it it went through this UW foundation and— now, this isn't part of the lawsuit, but this is now just coming out. All right, 
414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I don't know what to make of this story, and I'm, I'm not in a position to suggest that laws were violated or whatever, but this story on its surface, at least in my opinion, does not, does not meet the smell test. I mean, really, you're the chancellor. You know, you've got this foundation that is supposed to be for the interests of uh, UW students and the faculty and the mission of the university, and you obtain a piece of property. And by the way, by doing the deal this way, the former chancellor was able to avoid you know, paying real estate commissions that you would typically have to pay. To me, I don't know what's going on here, but it doesn't meet the smell test. It's not something... It's just not something that seems to me like somebody should be able to do. 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Just hearing the facts is reported in the Journal Sentinel. I, I think something's going on here, and I think this is definitely something that is worthy of a much more extensive investigation to figure out what really was happening. 1053, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. What do you think? We discuss next. Ten fifty-five, Jeff Wagner, six twenty, WTMJ. Mike in Wind Lake. Mike, good morning. Good morning, Jeff. What do you think of all this? this I, again, I don't know exactly what's going on, but if I was if I was somebody that donated to that Oshkosh uh, Foundation, I'd be asking a lot of questions. Well, Jeff, I uh, have donated to that for a number of years. In fact, the other day when I read the article, I told my wife, I said, "Not anymore." <laughs> and uh, you know, I kind of feel sorry for the kids that call all the time and ask for the money. And I don't think people are going to be too receptive to them anymore uh, after uh, reading that kind of stuff. And then a few years back, my wife got lucky in super cash and you know, won, won that about seven years ago. So we said, okay, let's give some money to the baseball program up there. We're going to get, uh, you know, a good old uh, brick or something in our name because I used to play for them years ago, UW Oshkosh Titans, and uh, that never happened either. So, um, yeah, I just, uh, you know, to pay... Yeah pay that much money for a house and uh it's not worth it i mean it, you know i mean it's just the whole thing just just stinks mike you know I'm, okay I, you know the the how the guy demands four hundred fifty thousand dollars for a house that is worth 320 or whatever that needs sixty two thousand dollars of work and you get the foundation to to buy it let you live there rent free for 20 months you avoid real estate commissions i wish i could get a deal like that you want to buy a house for me man <laughs> you know and this, yeah this all comes out after where all the other money was going in the first place right and uh yeah it's uh, it's it's pretty sad no it, it i mean it is and i mean see this is where i mean again i don't know enough about this to say that there that whether there's a civil action or a criminal, I, I don't know enough. I'll let other people you know, do an investigation. I do know that this whole thing stinks. And if I, like Mike, were one of these people that was actually donating money to this UW Oshkosh Foundation, thinking that this is money is going to be used to pay for scholarships for needy kids or help the baseball team or, or whatever, and I found out about this stuff, I would be you know mad as you know what simply because – Again, I'd be thinking this is not what I – this money was not intended to enrich the chancellor, and that's the effect of what happened. You know, this idea that, you know, we're going to essentially take this property off off his hands at this kind of inflated rate. And, again, I keep going back. Maybe – it's been a long while since I applied for a real estate loan, so I, I don't know. But I just – 
Maybe you have a different experience, but I'm trying to imagine walking into a bank and trying to get a loan, like I was saying earlier, for a house that is assessed at three hundred and twenty grand, saying that you're going to pay four hundred and fifty thousand dollars for it. Again, I can't think of any bank in the country, maybe the world, that would give you a loan to allow you to pay one hundred twenty thousand dollars more than the house is worth, unless you had just some enormous amount of of money that you were going to put up. Again, I don't know what happened here, but this you know whole thing just stinks to high heaven. Randy on our text line says, um, uh, nice to know that my daughter who's going to Oshkosh, her tuition money is being used properly. Now again, this isn't this isn't tuition. He tried to get the taxpayers to pick up the tab and the UW system said, no, we're not paying 450 grand for a house that's worth 320,000. Do you think we're crazy? Um, Jeff and Applin writes, either the chancellor, chancellor intentionally defrauded the foundation, um, the guy agreed to buy the property is criminally stupid or they were in cahoots. This is wrong. I don't know. Maybe there's some other explanation but I think inquiring minds have the right to know. It's 1059. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1108, Jeff Wagner. Glad to have you with us. You have got to be kidding me. This was one, I I was in Las Vegas over the weekend. Of course, I came back, and one of the things, when I'm in Las Vegas, I I, I do kind of punch out on current events. I, I admit I... Watch the business news at the end of the day just to see where the stock market, you know, finished. But but beyond that, I, the the only paper I read is the Daily Racing Form. That, that that's kind of it. And the only the only numbers I crunch are you know whether or not I need to take another card if I'm playing blackjack or something like that. That's just that is how I decompress. So is when I came back Sunday evening, I'm trying to put together stuff, figuring out. I mean, I knew we had the opening day show yesterday, but figuring out okay, let, let's get ready for Tuesday's show. And I came upon this story. And I I admit my reaction as a recovering attorney was, what's going on here? I also admit, I said, I got to find out about this judge. And I'm willing to bet that this was an Obama appointee. And and yes, this this particular judge we're going to be talking about, who is a U.S. District Judge in Kentucky. His name is David Hale. He was appointed to the federal bench. Um, about two or three years ago by Barack Obama. So, and I, and look, and I understand how judges don't like to be criticized and be accused of being sort of like political tools. But, but every once in a while, my message would be if you don't want to be accused of being a political tool, well, maybe you, you need to approach rulings, well, not like a political tool would. All right, here is the story, and I want to get your reaction to it. In March of 2016, this is before Donald Trump is the Republican nominee, much less before he is, is the president. He is holding a rally at some place called the Kentucky International Convention Center, which is in Louisville, Kentucky. So if you will remember, you know, there were there were lots of people who would who were protesters who would show up and try to disrupt the rally. And then you had other people who were the supporters. And there was always this contentious type of thing between the, the protesters who got into the event and the Trump supporters. So this is March of 2016. There, there is there's this rally going on. All right. You have these three people who attend the rally for the purpose of, quote, unquote, peacefully protesting Trump. Whatever that means. Now, one of one of the people who decides to show up to peacefully protest Trump 
is carrying a sign with Trump's head on a pig's body. Okay, all right. So, all right, this is kind of like, what's the Beatles song, Revolution? You know, if you go around carrying pictures of Chairman Mao, you ain't going to make it with anyone, Hal. Anyhow, okay, if you show up at a Trump rally carrying a carrying a picture, a sign with Trump's head on a pig's body, you understand that you are going there to provoke a reaction. Just like if I were to show up at a Hillary Clinton rally, I don't know, carrying a similar type of thing, you know, a, a sign with a picture of Hillary Clinton on a pig's body, you know that that would provoke a reaction from the crowd. So these people say, we showed up to peacefully protest, and, and, and imagine our surprise, the crowd got angry with us. Now, according to some of the allegations, these people who were peacefully protesting were apparently being a little bit loud, they were shouting, and they were trying to force their way to the front, right? But they're carrying, again, they're, they're there to either peacefully protest or disrupt the event. doesn't make any difference. But they're there to get attention and call attention themselves. So at one point in time, as they are, I don't know, doing what they're doing and causing a bit of a disturbance, Donald Trump, then the candidate, he, he sees this going on, and he says, get them out of here. You know, get them out of here. And then he says, don't hurt them. If I say go get them, I'm in trouble with the press. So that, that's what he says. Go you know, get them out of here. And what happens is a couple of the Trump supporters who are, are there, they then kind of go up to these people and, and they, start, they start pushing them. One guy who wore a career, Korean War Veterans Association uniform at the rally, you know, ad- admitted that, you know, one of these people, he started to push her towards the, the exit. You know, another person um, says that, yeah, I, I helped drive, you know, one of the women out of, of the crowd um, and says, yeah. And apparently this, one of the guys that did this was associated with some white supremacist organization. So, right. These people are causing a disruption at the Trump rally. The crowd kind of turns on them. They start to urge them through, you know, get them out. And I think security is coming in as well. All right. So here is what happens. These three people who showed up with the idea of slash peacefully protesting or disrupting the rally, they then turn around and and file a lawsuit. They sue the two Trump supporters who, who pushed them. And they have both apparently been charged with like a misdemeanor assault. Nobody was seriously injured in connection with this, but but they did, you know, make physical contact to push them. So they sue the two people who got physical with them and tried to push them. All right, fine. They also sue the Trump campaign, and the allegations are that the Trump campaign is also liable and should be paying money damages to them because the Trump campaign essentially was trying to incite a riot and was implicitly encouraging the use of violence or lawless action when then candidate now president Trump says you know get them out of here you know don't 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 hurt them um but get them out of here the argument is when he said, hey, get those protesters out of here, he was essentially then encouraging some of his supporters to assault these people carrying the, the, the pig head. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Now, the reason I bring this up is the, the Trump campaign had filed 
you know, a motion to dismiss this lawsuit, saying that this is there's no basis to allow it to proceed. The other day, this federal judge appointed by Barack Obama in 2014 decided, no, I think this complaint states a cause of action. We are going to allow discovery. We're going to allow the complaint to proceed against the Trump campaign. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Okay, under these circumstances, you've got people there that are protesting. The candidate on the stage says, you know, get them out of here. You know, don't hurt them. And a couple supporters push them. Is the Trump campaign, is Donald Trump in any real world, should he be held liable or responsible for inciting a riot or encouraging violence? What do you think? We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1115. Our number, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 414-799-1620. I understand that there is Trump derangement syndrome that goes on. But seriously, if a candidate at an event like this deals with protesters by saying, you know, get them out of here, does that mean that they are then responsible if a supporter or two pushes them? This isn't a question about whether or not the people who actually push them should be subject to a lawsuit you sue Trump. 414-799-1620. We discuss. It's 1116. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Eleven eighteen, Jeff Wagner, six twenty, WTMJ. Get the know the people behind the headlines at Insight two thousand seventeen, hosted by yours truly. It's at the Country Springs Hotel in Pewaukee on Wednesday, April nineteenth. That is two weeks from tomorrow. See Governor Scott Walker up close and personal, like you've never seen him before. Hear what it's like to live in the executive mansion, what it's like to run for president, how the budget is coming together in Madison, and the real story behind the fight over Act Ten. There are only fifteen days left until Insight two thousand seventeen. So get your tickets online. And check out the full guest full guest list at WTMJ.com. We're going to be joined, I'll give you a hint about some of the guests, Joe Bartolotta um, from Bartolotta Restaurant Groups. Um, we're going to talk about dining in the area, and he's got a real interesting career. Don Smiley and Bob Babish from Summerfest. We're going to be talking about Summerfest past, present, and future. Babish has great stories. Um, that's worth the price of admission alone, let me tell you. We're going to be joined by Wayne Larravee, the voice of the Green Bay Packers, uh, a week before the NFL draft. So if you're football fan you want to see that and and wayne uh, wayne just an incredible guy as well three justices from the state supreme court you almost never get a chance to see them and a cast of thousands so again check it out it's insight 2017 country springs hotel we record it in front of a live audience on wednesday night we will rebroadcast it um i think the plan is to rebroadcast it from 10 until noon on the next day thursday morning so uh but you can check it out it's going to be a lot of fun looking forward to it quite a bit all right th- this this is just an amazing story to me, and I, I understand I understand that judges, like I say, don't like to be criticized for some of the rulings they make, and they don't like to be have it implied that they are political tools. But at the same take, token, like I say, if you don't want to be a political tool, don't act like a political tool. And I understand sometimes at early stages of lawsuits, it's better to allow them to go on. But at least in my opinion, this is absolutely ridiculous. Donald Trump rally last March. There's these people who come with the intention of disrupting the rally. They say, we were there to peacefully protest them. I'm sorry, you show up at a a candidate's rally with a sign that has a picture of the candidate on a pig's body. 
<laughs> this isn't just a peaceful protest. You are there to try to disrupt the event. And that is precisely what they are doing. Trump says, get them out of here as they're apparently trying to push their way to the stage. And a couple of his supporters don't wait for security to get involved. They lay hands on them and they kind of push them down the aisle. The people who are pushed down the aisle, they then file this lawsuit saying, hey, this this was, you know, we, we were assaulted and all these things. They sue the people who pushed them. Fine. Whether they're going to be able to recover or not, that's a different story. But they also sue the Trump campaign for saying, hey, 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 get them out of here. He also says, don't don't hurt them. Um, if I say go get them, I'm in trouble with the press. But he but he does so, say get them out of here. So now they're, they're suing him. So if I'm a candidate standing on a stage and you've got people that are there creating a disturbance or there to protest and I say get them out of here, now they're going to be able to sue me if some supporter lays hands on them um, on our text line. Dan says, I wonder how this judge would rule on the Stanford riot. Yeah. Another one of our text lines said, the lawsuit is absolutely ridiculous. We live in a society of nothing but frivolous lawsuits where people sue just for the sake of suing. Yes. Yes. But the problem is that the judges are supposed to be the gatekeepers for this. And I understand this is the early stage, and anybody can sue anybody, and just because you file a lawsuit doesn't mean that you are going to succeed in this. But imagine what doors this opens up. So now you can have protesters that if if this becomes the law— and if this judge is upheld, now you can have protesters who show up. They can, whatever, make attempts to try to disrupt a rally. And the candidate has the audacity to say, hey, get them out of here. And somebody then pushes them or whatever. That's now going to be the basis of lawsuit, not just against the supporter who pushed them, who was arguably wrong, but also against the candidate who says that. I mean, you want to talk about a way to exploit things. If this ruling is allowed to stand, this is now going to be the standard thing. Let's crash rallies of whatever conservative politician there might be. Let's try to disrupt something. And then if there's any acknowledgement of us, if there's any reference to us at all, let's turn around and sue. Now, I understand Donald Trump does some silly things from time to time. I understand some of the things that he puts out on on Twitter you know, make a lot of us cringe. I understand that there's people who have issues with his temperament and his personality. But seriously, a candidate from the stage saying, get him out of here, to hold him liable for inciting a riot or encouraging violence against these various protesters, to me, is the height of absurdity. And I do seriously wonder if this was, you know, a federal judge with more seasoning or a federal judge who wasn't as, well, arguably politically motivated, whether this would have the same result. And again, I know federal judges don't like to be criticized in that fashion, but all right, when you make rulings like this, you got a lot of people just absolutely shaking their head. It's 1124, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1126, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Coming up in 10 minutes, it's the end of an era. What the heck happened? We will discuss. 
Um, last week, we, we spent one segment talking about that this case that it, it actually goes back to uh, the late 1970s, 1978, actually. But it's, it's been fascinating to me watching this whole thing play out. It involves the, the noted film director, Roman Polanski, who was married to Sharon Tate at the time. Sharon Tate, of course, was one of the victims of uh, Charles Manson back in 68 or 69, I think, is when that happened, 68 or 69. Um, he went on to – he directed, what, Chinatown. He directed Rosemary's Baby. Those were probably two of his, his most famous movies. And what, what happened was in, in 1977 – he took a underage girl. She was 13 years old, and she was, like, modeling from it. And it's a weird story because it's like the mom of this 13-year-old girl kind of kind of made her, the 13-year-old girl, available to Roman Polanski. It's a really weird sort of story. But um, he was charged with six felonies back in 1977 after he was accused of bringing this 13-year-old girl um, – over to actor Jack Nicholson's house and then, you know, giving her a quaalude and giving her champagne and then having sex with her. Always a bad thing. You know, 40-some-year-old guy or whatever, you know, 13-year-old girl, pills, alcohol, not a good thing. So he gets charged with unlawful sex with a minor. And he's trying to resolve the case and and what they do is they say okay as part of this plea deal you've got to go into this treatment psychological assessment program for like 90 days and after 42 days that they, they let him out and there's a recommendation that goes to the judge now the judge says well all right i'm going to um he makes a public statement this wasn't at the sentencing but he says what well, looks like uh, I'm, I'm going to probably send him, you know, sentence him to another like 40 some days. So he'd serve like the full 90 days or whatever this would be for essentially raping a 13 year old girl, which, OK, you, you might argue you get 90 days, you know, but but it's not even a jail. It's in this kind of rehab thing. Well, anyhow, Polanski freaks out at the notion that he might be sent back into some form of custody. This is 1978. So he splits. He flees the country and takes off. And he has been a fugitive from the United States since 1978. Well, he has been trying to resolve this matter. And he wants to come back to the United States because, I mean, he's, again, despite the fact that he's a child rapist, that the Hollywood left love him and they, they want to embrace him. And they want to bring back this great film director. Don't you understand? This man is an artist. He is an artiste. And the rules that apply to most people don't apply to guys like Roman Polanski. And so they, they've been trying to, again, work out arrangements where, you know, he can come back and all can be forgiven. Well, all right. The, the typical thing when you deal with fugitives is, and the way the LADA's office has taken this position, the way the judges have is, okay, you know, if you want to resolve this, fine. You have jumped bail. You come back, and then we'll we'll assess it. We'll decide if you know. We'll decide if now it's, it's been forty years. You've long ago settled the lawsuit with the thirteen-year-old girl who's now in her fifties. You know, they paid her a whole bunch of money to make the, these claims kind of go away. And they say, okay, you know, you've been a fugitive for forty years. You come on back. And, you know, we'll we'll decide what is the appropriate sentence. Well, Polanski and his lawyers are saying, well, no, we, we don't want to come back until unless you tell us in advance what it's going to be. And if you might send me to jail for 30 days or 60 days or a year or whatever, I'm not going to show up. So tell me in advance what you're going to do. And they've been trying to file motions, getting the court to, uh, again, commit up front what they're going to do if he deems to, deems to come back in the United States. Well, over the weekend, uh, the, the judge in Los Angeles exercising 
on a remarkable degree of common sense, said, no, it, it doesn't work that way. Uh, Mr. Polanski, if, if you want to come back, you know, and you want to resolve this bail jumping charge and you want to resolve, you know, whatever has, I will impose, you know, I'll decide what to do, but I'm not going to make these decisions unless you come back. And otherwise, just you know, somehow the United States will have to live without Roman Polanski coming in and accepting an Oscar in person from the Hollywood elite. So this is one case where I think the court system got it exactly right. Roman Polanski apparently will remain a fugitive because he doesn't want to come in and face the music for, number one, assaulting a 13-year-old girl, and number two, skipping bail and remaining a fugitive for going on 40 years. I guess we're just going to have to live without Roman Polanski in the U.S. for another year or two. I don't know. I think I'm going to just have to suck it up. It's 1136, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. If, like me, you grew up in this area, particularly Milwaukee, you, you could remember that there used to be the, the big three of German restaurants. There was Mater's, there was the John Ernst Cafe, and there was Carl Roche's. Um, I always, of the three, I, I, I mean, Roche's I always thought was the best. But, but those were the, the big three and you know, just, just institutions. The, the John Ernst Cafe closed a number of years ago, leaving Carl Roche's and, and Mater's. Um, what happened was about, well, a year or so ago, the Carl Roche's, the, the owners sold um, sold the place to um, another another chef who runs a, a restaurant, you know, downtown. And, and what they did was they they renovated the, the restaurant, they cleaned out a lot of stuff, that they, they reopened. And the hope was that okay, Carl Roche's, which again is a Milwaukee institution, was going to be able to you know operate in the future. Big announcement over the weekend was that less than a year after. Carl Roche's reopening, and my guess is pretty much everybody. If you grew up around here, you you were there. I mean, the restaurant, while not at its current location, but the restaurant had been in operation since 1904, been around for like 115 years. Well, it was announced over the weekend that Carl Roche's, just less than a year after the new ownership group took over, it, it's closing. It's closed its doors. So, I mean, it's it it's gone away. It, it's not around anymore. And I think that news stunned a, a lot of us because Carl Roche's was one of those places that you always thought was going to be there. Now, I, I thought about this because this is now in the last three or four months. It's the second what I would describe as historic Milwaukee restaurant institution that's closed. The other was the, the Watts Tea Shop, which had been around just just forever. Again, Really, as a matter of fact, it's, it's three or four blocks from where Carl Roche's is. I mean, they closed at the end of last year. But the Watts Tea Room was a place that everybody at, at some point in time, you know, went to. It was kind of like a rite of passage many times. And it just, it, it wonderful lunches and things like that, that closed. Roche's closed. Now, on the one hand, I admit I'm surprised with both. But at the same time, I was trying to think, I don't remember the last time that I went to the Watts Tea Room. And um, Carl Roche's, I, I kept meaning to get there and see that the new iteration of Roche's. I mean, the, the, the new Carl Roche's that, that had a lot of the same items on the menu. They kept a lot of that. But the truth is, I, I hadn't been back to it. I probably haven't been to Roche's for two or three years. 
Um, the last time I think I went was when my best friend had some friends in town, and we went out on a Saturday night or something like that. And I had a very, very nice meal, but that was you know under the previous ownership. So I, I have no position on whether like the new ownership was whether the food was good, whether the service was great. I, I just don't know. I just know that you know a restaurant that opened in 1904 that you thought was always going to be there has now closed. And this is the second restaurant like that that is closed over the course of the last few months. Again, the second legendary sort of restaurant, which I think makes me once again appreciate, number one, you know, how difficult the restaurant business really is. I mean, that, that you could have these, these institutions that you just think are always going to be there and suddenly they go away. And, and how, number two, tough it is to run and operate a restaurant. And, and number three, how public tastes change. Because I'm here to tell you, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, if you would have said, gee, you know, John Ernst's Cafe is going to close, the Carl, Carl Roche's is going to close, people would have looked at you like you had three heads. It's another. The, the, these are the places, along with Mater's, that you think of as being, you know, the, the classic Milwaukee dining spots. Now, I understand tastes change over the years, and, you know, people want different type of things, and they want new dining experiences, and they want lighter fare or, or whatever, and maybe like the classic German dishes, maybe those kind of things fall out of favor. But on the other hand, you don't necessarily think that they fall out of favor that much. So I've been thinking about this over the weekend, and I, I, I want to spend one segment on this. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. I admit it kind of hit me a little hard that, that Rosh's was closing and that the Watts Tea Room was closing. And I've gotten to thinking about a number of the other just outstanding restaurants throughout southeastern Wisconsin that are, are gone. And places that you just never thought would close, but that in have, have in fact closed. So let's open up the phone lines. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Carl Roche's is now gone. The Watts Tea Room is now gone. All right. What, what's that? Is there a restaurant that you think of that, you know, you just always loved? You thought it was always going to be there. You thought it was a part of Milwaukee's history, and it's gone, and you miss it. 414-799-1620. It's 1141. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. If you're on the line, please hold on. 1144, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Yeah, when I came back from Las Vegas, my best friend had sent me this, this clipping um, that, that Carl Roche is closing. The year after it opened under new management, Carl Roche has been around since 1904. And uh, it was, I mean, really, when you thought about Milwaukee and you thought about the big three restaurants, it was Mater's, John Ernst, and um, Carl Roche's. Now now it's just Mater's. And I was just thinking about all the, the restaurants that you thought were institutions that have ended up closing over the years. Joan um, in Waukesha. Joan, good morning. Good morning. The, the Weissmuckers Gas House closed out here a couple years ago, and yep. that was also a German-type uh, restaurant. But that was a wonderful place to dine and a great experience. I I, I loved that, that place. I just absolutely yeah. loved it. We, we used to do, like, free ride events out there, and I always go in and have something to eat, and I love the bars and all. Um, yeah. yeah, and, that, and so now place. it's... Now it's going to be like a like a strip mall or something, right? Is that what I think? That's what they're going to turn I don't it think into. There's anything in it right now. I think it's still sitting there empty. Right. Yeah. I think that was ultimately the plan. I mean, thanks to the call, it was going to be like a a strip mall and then like some fast food place, which is like okay. I mean, no offense to like a lot of the chain pharmacies or whatever, but yeah. But I mean, I understand times end up changing. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Ron writes the Boulevard Inn. Yeah, it used to be on the west side, and then they moved to the. Um, 
that's where um, my my former sister in law her 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 wedding was at. I always remember that. And then then they moved to the east side. Now it's one of the Bartolotta's places. Um, let's see another on our text line. Pandles Bayside Inn had an unbelievable brunch. Yeah, backs up to the Audubon Center there. Yeah, that, that the Pandles in Bayside, the one in Whitefish Bay is still open, but the Pandles in Bayside, you, you thought that was always going to be a restaurant, and now it's um it, it's a religious thing. They turned it there. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty is the number. Let's talk to Paul in West. Alice. Paul, good morning. Good morning. Our very favorite restaurant, we're still, we still talk about it, was Alexander's on 9th and Lincoln. It oh. was classy, it had the best drinks, and the very best food around. Uh, yeah, and that's been closed for quite a while now, as I recall. Yeah, by early '80s, I'd say. Yeah, it, it's just, I'm, you know, thanks to it, it is, it, it's, it's amazing. I remember. My late father always used to love to go. There was a restaurant called the Embers. Not there was a chain Embers, but this wasn't what. And it was um, just it was by Juno Village downtown. And my my gosh, my father he he just loved that place, and he would go there all the time. And you know sometimes you know we we would go along with them on like family dinners and stuff. But that that was another place. It did just an incredible incredible business. But but ultimately, again, it, it gets caught. It just underscores how difficult it is to run a restaurant and keep a restaurant so successfully open for years and years and years. Let's talk to Dolores in Brookfield. Dolores, good morning. You're on 620 WTMJ. Hi. I know I'm dating myself because this goes way back, but Frenchie's was my husband and my favorite restaurant. Um, on the Lower East Side there, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah Frenchie's I, I don't know, you know, that was a little bit before my time. I mean, I, I remember Frenchies and stuff, but I was kind of a teenager when it ended up closing. So that was that was a little beyond my price range, I think. But I but I know how popular that place was. Yeah. Yeah. No. It's it, again, but again, it's it just it just you know it just disappears. Um, let's see, Carolyn Manami Falls, right? Boaters, right? Boaters on the river up in. Uh, up in Ozaki County, what was that? Uh, up in Mequon, Boaters definitely uh, one of my favorites. Uh, no, it is not still open. Mannings on Good Hope Road. That's another one on our text line. Yeah, I was matter of fact, I was driving down Good Hope Road the other day, heading west, and I, I just you, you look over and I remember Mannings Restaurant used to be on on that corner there, and now it's a now it's a gas station or something. But that was a place that lots and lots of people used to go. Let's talk to um, David in Wauwatosa. David, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. Have a great day. Uh, listen, um, I thought about the pieces of eight. Okay. And the reason I thought about that is I was trying to impress my girlfriend. So we would always go there <laughs> when we could or when I could afford it. Right. And that's where I, you know, asked her to marry me. And it was a very nice restaurant. It was right on the lakefront. Yep. Well, it's where Harbor, right? It's where Harbor House is now, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Okay, right. I, I got to ask you. So, you, you take your girlfriend to Pieces of Eight. You propose. Did she say yes? Oh, we've been married for forty six years. <laughs> okay. Well, no, it was just kind of interesting because the way you led into it, you said I, I talked took my girlfriend there. I was I, you know, I thought you might say, hey, I took my wife there, and that's where we got engaged. But okay, I was. It's so it worked out. <laughs> good, good, yeah. Congratulations. So, thanks. Thanks for calling. Now, I will say this about Pieces of Eight. Let me see. Um, if you know where Harbor House is now, just to the north of Discovery World, Harbor House is where Pieces of Eight was. Um, Pieces of Eight was this Polynesian restaurant that, how can I say this nicely? It had a tremendous view. I always thought the food sucked. <laughs> just, I mean, I always thought, I just, I, I, it, it, was, it was a place that I never thought the food lived up to the, the view. And so I, I'm a, you can be nostalgic about that, but I'm a huge fan of, uh, of Harvard House. Um, let's talk to Lori in Menominee Falls. Hi, Lori. You're on 620 WTMJ. 
Hi, how are you? Very well, thank you. Okay, Carl Rush is closed. I can't believe it. Stunning, isn't it? Yeah. What, uh, okay, the place that you really missed that you thought was always going to be an institution. Uh, the Boulevard Inn. Right. Uh, I got a gift certificate from the hospital that I had my first child at to go there, you know, kind of like get the new parents out to have a date. Right. And I just thought it was one of the best experiences of my life. And you had talked to Pieces of Eight. I had gone there for my prom. Right. And uh, we were eating dinner, and they had all those hanging everywhere. I mean, there were plants, if anybody remembers that, you know, spider plants and whatever. And we actually had, I had a spider come down and land in my food from one of those plants. So yeah. I agree with you there so hot. Yeah, no, but it, I mean, right. I mean, it got by on location all along. And I mean, I remember always thinking this is this spectacular location. And I'm, I, I think they, I'm, yes, I'm sure they raised the building and now they have Harper House down there. And it was kind of like, okay, this is a spectacular location, but it, it doesn't matter who's owning this. And I'm, I'm sorry if you were one of the owners and you're listening to this. I just, I always thought the food was really, really disappointing. And I mean, I think Harper House is, is certainly a great, a great plus. Okay, 414-799-1620. Let's talk to uh, Jeff on the west side. Jeff, good morning. Morning. Um, Derry Haggerty's was a, a great institution in our Story Hill neighborhood. And, uh, yeah, I was sorry to see that uh, go, and now it's under its second reinvention again. Yeah. I spent, um, I spent, I spent much of my misbegotten youth at that place. <laughs> you know, as, as, as anybody who, you know, anybody who grew up around here or, for example, who, like me, who went to Marquette University Law School, you, you ended up hanging out at Derry Haggerty's you know, quite a yeah. bit. Although very funny, I also proposed to my wife of 23 years at uh, Pieces of Eight. Really? Okay. Yeah. Did, did you find the food to be better than I did? Am I being too harsh on the food? <laughs> I can't remember. I think we went to the the, the brunch buffet. Right. You know, it was mostly for the view. Right. Exactly. Um, that that was, right. That that that's it. That's I mean, candidly, that's why you went to Pieces of Eight. Um, couple people on our text line. The revolving restaurant at the top of the Hyatt. Yeah, that was uh, that that was Polaris. Um, I don't remember eating there that much. I do remember it was a revolving restaurant at the top of the Hyatt. I I just I remember going to. The bar on occasion. Ah, on our text line, somebody after my own heart. The ground round used to go there every Sunday and watch the Packers game on big screen TVs. I used to go there as a kid. There were they, they used to have like bands that played. I used to go and hang out and watch bands like County Trunk A playing. That's taking me back years and years and years. Let's talk to Todd in Milwaukee. Todd, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. I remember Sally Steakhouse as being one of my favorite places. They had a um Gosh, I want to say it was like a tenderloin smothered in onion rings and and thing, and then you'd get a baked potato on the side. And of course, you had Sally Papilla, who had a colorful background, but was um, that was a fun place. It was in the the um, the Astor Hotel. I was going to say Shorecrest, but that was Snugs. Yeah. The Astor Hotel downtown. Yeah, that's what it was. They had great bartenders, Australian lobster tail, excellent <laughs> uh, escargot. It was just a great place. It, it was. I had to. Um, thanks, Sally Papilla was. The late Sally Papillo, who was a restaurateur, she she was a, a character who had, well, a, it was an interesting place because you would go there and you would see some of the mobsters in town that, that were there. I actually, after I went to work for the U.S. Attorney's Office, that's when um, I decided I, I probably should stop eating at Sally's because I, I didn't want to show up on, I didn't want to show up on the surveillance photos. That let me just just say that. So it was that that was a place that like. Some of the the Milwaukee underworld was known to hang out at that, is along with uh, against I think it was Snugs in the Shorecrest Hotel as well. Let's talk to uh, let's see. We got Tony on the north side. Tony, you're on six twenty WTMJ. 
Hi, Jeff. Hi, Tony. The Golden Zither German restaurant, because my mother was the best chef there, and <laughs> I was the best dishwasher ever. <laughs> what about, what about, what is it about all these German restaurants that are closing? I have no idea. I, the, the Carl Rosh's was a big surprise to us, so I have no idea. Um, yeah, I mean, right. I mean, again, but in fairness, like I say, I've been meaning for the last year since it reopened under the new ownership. I have been meaning to get down there, and I never have. And it, it's been a year, so I, I don't know. I guess I guess a lot of people just weren't going. Maybe, maybe I keep thinking maybe it's that kind of old style German food that is falling out of favor. Although nah, Jeff, I still love it, baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and, and I guess I mean, look, I mean, one of a place I love some free advertising here is what is it, Kegels and on, on West Alice on, on National Avenue. I mean, I think they've got great fish fries. That's that's a family-owned restaurant. All sorts of great stuff. I'm sorry, we have absolutely jammed phone lines. Um, Chalet on the Lake, Bishop's Buffet, Loman Steakhouse, the Golden Sizzler, um, Nico's by the airport. Ron writes that. Um, yeah, I mean, all sorts of places. Our text line has absolutely exploded. But again, it's I like to take these walks back memory down memory lane. But but also moving forward, you just see how 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 tenuous these things are and places like Rosh's or places like, again, the, um, the the Watts Tea Room, things that you think are institutions that you think are always going to be there, well, sometimes they're not. So I guess the message is enjoy them while they're there. It's 11.55. When we come back, Scafidi and Bill Stat, find out what they have on their agenda. Stick around. 11.58, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, Steve Scafidi, Eric Billstadt. Good morning, gentlemen. Hey, good morning, Jeff. We're, we are going to talk about is the life of an attorney becoming way more dangerous? They're starting to carry weapons. Did you carry a weapon when you were an attorney? I was. Well, they didn't have concealed carry back then, but um, for three years, because of death threats, I was. Yeah, I did. I was a special. I had to qualify. I was a special deputy U.S. marshal, so I had to qualify with a gun and prove I could shoot and stuff. But for three years, because of death threats. But yeah, it's Oof. it's getting. And that was freaky. I, I honestly, that was that that was freaky. I was always uncomfortable with that. But uh, nowadays. It was crazy then. It's crazier now. 